Welcome to a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. Because it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. A breath of fresh air. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day. Hi, thanks for joining me. I hope you're going to be able to settle in and enjoy what's coming up this hour. I always try to bring you a range of guests from the 60s, 70s and 80s. They're all artists that have captured my imagination at some point or another, and their music always takes me back to where I was when I first heard them, usually to my teenage years. They say that that's when you're most affected by music, and that was certainly the case with me. My kids often accuse me of getting stuck in the 70s, especially when I dance. Well, it was a great era, wasn't it? So on today's show, we're going to meet an artist whose one-hit wonder still ranks as one of the most successful songs of its time. Her name is Merrily Rush, and her song... Just call me Angel of the Morning Angel chat to Merrily shortly. We also get up close and personal with guitarist Martin Barr, whose collaboration with Ian Anderson made English band Jethro Tull so successful. But before we go there, I'd like you to meet a quintessential stalwart in the Australian and New Zealand music scene. His name is Kevin Borich, and he's been around for some 56 years and has just put out a new album. Check this out. This is exactly what we were dancing to in Australia back in the 70s. Don't see my baby tonight. Excited to be your Zoom virgin, Kevin Borich. Welcome to a breath of fresh air. I like the sound of that Zoom virgin thing. There are lots of people who are listening to this who haven't grown up in Australia and possibly yeah. may not know who you are. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind we take a little walk down memory lane before we come up to this new album. Is that cool with you? Yeah, of course, yeah. So, Kevin Borich, you recorded your very first single at the age of 12. Well, I grew up, my parents were migrants from uh, Dalmatia, which is a Croatian coast. As they worked hard, I was, a, I was a child, and when I was about 10 or 11, I started miming the radio with a tennis racket, and um, so they thought that was a bit strange. Instead of buying me balls, <laughs> they <laughs> bought me a guitar. <laughs> and... Uh, and, you know, I, I, I got a chord book and was struggling and could, then could get my three-chord thing happening. My auntie gave me a Hank Williams record, which was a song called um, Honky Tonkin'. It's, it's a two-chord song, so this one really good one for learners. When you're a sad and lonely, got no place to go on. Around this town, you just go to D for one, you know, so it was D all the way. When you are sad and lonely and have no place to go, come to I got a bit more proficient and then started learning some songs and that next door neighbours were uh, poultry farmers and uh, Mrs Donaldson had two daughters and they, they had perfect harmonies and they heard me through the hedge. They heard me playing and she said, well, you should come over and join in with the girls and that'd be, that'd be fun. And so um, mum and dad were too busy on the, on the orchard and I was um, taken in with the Donaldson girls and we went into Auckland and stood around one microphone and cut it about eight songs all to one acetate, they call it. You know, it was going straight to the cup. Kevin, of course, you're talking about New Zealand, aren't you? Because that's where you grew up. Yeah, getting better on the guitar and then, of course, got to high school better and then I came across two guys. So we started rocking out and doing Shadows tunes by then, you know. But when we heard the Beatles, we thought, oh, gee, we better start singing. <laughs> we got a residency in a place called the Platterack. It was a real den of iniquity. We were sort of like a hot band in town because be, I'd be recording stuff that was coming through the BBC. When we were looking for the name, we were in the kitchen of Trevor's mum's place and she heard us talking about calling ourselves the criminals and all these terrible sort of dark names and she was going, oh dear, how do I know someone of mine been in a band called the criminals? 
Why don't you call yourself something nice like the Lardy Dars? We went, oh no, no, that's yeah. We don't like that. And, and we kept searching, searching. We thought, oh, well, why don't we use that? It's funny, you know. <laughs> so that's, we went with that from then on. And you had massive success as the Lardy Dars. Yeah. Well, see, people don't understand, or young people don't understand that, to, that back then the, day, the world was a huge place. And in New Zealand, I mean, Sydney's got more people than the whole of New Zealand. So when you're a musician, you do a couple of weeks and you've done the, done the tour. So the first step is like we followed Max Merritt, who's one, I was a fan of Max Merritt. And of course, that, the first step was to go to Australia, to, to the big wide world, you know. And you did this amazing version of the Beatles come together, didn't you? Yeah, well, that happened um, later on when we, when we decided to um, go to England. Uh, it was 1969 by then. We went to England and we were um, going to try our luck over there. We had no management. We got there. We had Swampy, our roadie. When we got there, we, we were in London for about two nights and realised just how expensive it was. <laughs> See my baby tonight, come along. That was in uh, 73. The the band had gone from, started to disintegrate after 10 years, you know, slowly. But we were fourth piece by then. And and I wrote that song in the back of a, um, the Swampy's van here. And he had a really cool, cool van. In those days, there was so much work that we were playing, live music was really happening, that the, there was this kind of a competition between roadies about who had the best band. And we had a double wheel transit with aeroplane seats behind. And so I wrote the song, sitting behind the swamp people with the guitar, and I just learned the major seventh chord, a couple of little jazzy sort of chords, and I was pretending to be a sleazy nightclub singer right behind his head, and we're heading home, of course, and I'm going, I'm going to love you all night long, clonk, clonk, playing all this, when the street lights time, and I've got that intro, and everyone's cracking up, and the swamp people goes, well, what happens then? And I started mucking around and get the dun, 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 going to see my baby, you know, onto it. And so the next corner of 100 kilometres we worked out how to finish up the song. So that's how that one started and that uh, did pretty well. I'm going to love you all night long But when the streetlights die, I'll be gone Whoa, yeah, do do do. Going to see my baby tonight's success. Yeah, yeah, very surprised when that came. That was just, just marvellous. Those days in the mid '70s were huge for Australian music. I don't think it's ever been as good as it was then. It, they were, yeah. it was the heyday of Australian music, wasn't it? You were surrounded by so much talent. Can you tell us a little about that? Well, it's because the venues were having live music on, and so it was like a fertile garden. It was, it was a wonderful time. Who were some of the musos that you most respected from those days? I loved Chain, uh, Matt Taylor, Matt Taylor's Chain. 
Billy Thorpe. I was I went around in Billy's place when he was writing. Most people I know think I'm crazy. Played it to me on the veranda and said, "What do you think?" I think that's a hit. You knew. Yeah, so <laughs> lots, lots of, lots of great people that you know we came across in different bands. After a while, you guys split up too. Yeah, the four-piece went to three-piece, and I kept on to the name because I was married, you know, and I had a, had a family. I did one album under the Ladida name, and it was called Rock and Roll Sandwich. Um, that was my first three-piece, so it was kind of a big step from a five-piece, four-piece, and then I went three-piece. And there's a lot, to, lot you have to do when you're the guy out the front, and it's just bum, bass, and drums. That was really well received, you know, kind of a, 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 a transition for my start, you know into my Kevin Morris Express. Just before we continue further, I keep wondering what happened to the Donaldson girls. Well, they became the chicks. Poultry farm, the chicks. <laughs> <laughs> Get it? Get it? I got it. And they actually had hits. Right. So what comes next for you then? Was it Kevin Morris Express that came next or the party boys? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, no, I did Kim Morris Express, but I got um, asked to do a tour with uh, Stevie Wright. He had a um, new album out, so. From the Easy Bits. scene was really happening like you say the 70s yeah it was um really really rocking and so uh, we were working flat out and that's what a lot of the stuff is um on this new new release after kevin borich express the party boys were formed in the 80s can you tell me a little bit about that man i can tell you a little bit i had this call from this gentleman he uh, had a concept he said do you want to do it because he was completely unknown in the industry and he needed someone that had some runs on the board and i said what are you going to call it and he said um I haven't got a name. And I said, oh, it's going to be fun and you know, like a party. And he said, yeah. And I had a plash, call it the Party Boys. <laughs> and so that's how the name came, you know. It was really, really, really great. We had hit singles with Swanee Singh. The Party Boys featured a revolving door of players and at one stage even had Joe Walsh from the Eagles with them. He actually came in after rehearsal and I was phone call. Hey, man, you got a couch? <laughs> and I said, yeah, sure, Joe. And he was in a hotel. And I said, he said, do you mind, mind if I come on, man? And so, yeah, he came and slept on the couch and we uh, got to know each other really well and did another rehearsal and then went on tour. Dragons lead singer Mark Hunter was in there, the Divinals yeah. drummer Richard Harvey, Skyhooks vocalist Joel Strawn was in there for a bit too, Harvey James, Richard Clapton. Everybody had a go at the Party Boys. Yeah, it was great. It was a great vehicle and it was working well. But unfortunately, greed sort of brought it to an end for me because it turns out.
Kevin Burridge, right now you've got a new release under your belt. As you said earlier, it's all been cleaned up, remastered. Tell us yeah, a little bit about what's all, on it. And it's all original stuff. This is all music that I've, I've written and worked on over the years and played to people. Party Boys was a cover band. It's a great compilation of things over that time. It's called Kevin Boric Legacy. It celebrates Legacy. your entire career, which stems back over 50 years. And you know yeah, what my that, next question is going to be, yeah. don't you? There's got to be one favourite track on that album. Which one would it be? Well, I don't know. It's a live one, but it's a real ripping version of Celebration, which is a great title and it's about, you know, celebrating. shows influences of your past, what you love, and it's in a, it goes into a big blender. That's the blender comes it comes out the, the inspirations and, and styles and that that you that you love. I love blues, I love rock, I love reggae, I love Latin. So there's that mixture in there. How many tracks? Well, there's 17 on two of them and 12 on the second one. Was it a difficult choice for you, Kevin Burrage, to decide which tracks to include? They were pretty obvious because a lot of them, you know, a lot of them I, I play live. There were some really good attempts here at, at singles that never got played. It almost so, feels like it's the rebirth of Kevin Burrage with this new release. Well, you would like to think so. That's the body of work that, that if anyone gave, said, well, show us what you did, and not that's it, that's the pick. The definitive Kevin Burrich collection. And you're still as passionate about it all today as you were when you set out? Yeah, I, you know, when I'm on stage, I get lost in it. You get, just get lost and taken away and, and, and then you get the energy from the people who are enjoying it. Once a rocker, always a rocker, huh? I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for your time, Kevin. Great catching up. Thank you, love. It's been a pleasure. We'll be right back. Up next, it's Merrily Rush. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Thanks for hanging in with me. I hope you're enjoying what you're hearing. Call me one hit wonder. Curse me to the day I die. One hit wonder. I hit the blunt and just wonder. Now, the name Merrily Rush mightn't mean much to you because her career really never took off like it should have. But if I tell you that Merrily sung that incredible hit from 1968, Angel of the Morning, you'll definitely know who I'm talking about. Just call me Angel of the Morning. What a treat to meet with you. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. This is early morning for me, so I'm not quite all there. What time is it? Well, it's four in the afternoon, but my sleep schedule is completely different than everybody else's. How come? Because I can. A friend of mine, Howard Kalen from the Turtles. Yeah. He used to go to bed after the day show, and I thought that was really decadent. And then I started staying up late and I'm going, I can do this. I go to bed before the Today Show. <laughs> so what time do you go to bed of a day? Well, I start thinking about it at 4 a.m. And hopefully I have I shut the lights out by 6 a.m. I get my eight hours in. Right. All my life I've been an entertainer. So when I would work, especially working night, the working night, night <laughs> you know, you get you get done at two in the morning. Then you think about having something to eat. And then it's six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> How does that work in a relationship? Does he do the same? I have an entertainer also. So you both keep the same hours? 
Yeah, I haven't done anything for the last two years. When Marilee says she hasn't been doing anything, that's not quite true. She's been breeding old English sheepdogs for the last 62 years and has just had a hip replacement. I'm used to showing dogs and raising litters and I can't get on my knees now. So I bred my last litter two years ago and I'm done. When you talk about a farm, you live on what was your grandfather's property in Washington State. Right. And and during World War II, my dad was in England serving. So when I was born, I lived on this farm with my mom till my dad came home. Wow. But we bred Egyptian Arabian horses for 10 years, and we stopped that before we got hurt too badly. And so then I concentrated on the dogs, and we just made a an estate out of this farm instead of horses making money. So apart from dogs and horses, you've been working as an entertainer all these years. Yes. Uh, you know, from about 1985, I married my husband and stopped doing club work because at that point I had done 15 years in the clubs and became asthmatic. I was worn out. I couldn't breathe. I, I just couldn't function. So I stopped. And then in the 90s, I started doing oldies shows. You may call them nostalgia shows. But then the Beatles came along and they kind of destroyed the rhythm and blues period. And from rhythm and blues to R&B rock in 65 with Marilyn and the Turnabouts. Well, it's all right to love someone. And it's all right to have your fun. And it's okay to show him you care. singers weren't popular at the time at all. It was predominantly a male industry, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. How was it for you to be out front of a bunch of guys? Well, my first husband was the band leader, so I didn't have to worry about, you know, dealing with hiring and firing and the ugly part, you know, lifting equipment and all of that. That was taken care of because the girl singer got to come in and just sing sing and play. (laughs) I, I was a keyboard player. You were a classically trained pianist. You studied for 10 years. Right, right. I finally had to face my audience when um, Joe Gersio put together my first show for Vegas. And he, Joe Gersio was Elvis's conductor, arranger. He conducted at the Hilton. And he put together my first show. And he's, he said, you got to get off your crutch. You got to get away from your crutch. Let somebody else play the keyboards. Get out front and come front your audience. Was that a challenge for you? I did it. It was a a process of just every night confronting the audience. Yeah. And then when I went in, I had to go into the clubs when the music scene changed here. Marilee, did you always know that you were to be an entertainer? I mean, I guess you set out as as a pianist thinking in some shape or form you'd be an entertainer, but did you always know that singing would be part of your game? No, no. I never planned on making this my career. But I had some friends who were singers that I backed up when we'd go play talent shows, USO shows, special events. And I was the piano player. And they were getting all the uh, kudos. So one of them went to audition for my first husband's band. I love singing background. I didn't have a great talent for singing at the time, but I love singing harmony. And he hired me. So that's when we put together a band called Marilyn and Her Men. And that lasted a couple of years. And then we went into Rhythm and Blues, a Rhythm and Blues band called Tiny Tony and the Statics. And Tony was a 300-pound black man and very entertaining. Uh, we just That was a really fun period because the music was so great.
people talk about the good old days of music, I guess that's what you're referring to. They've never been quite the same, have they? No, a lot has changed. Although there are parts of genres that I really love, you know, like My Chemical Romance, and there are pieces, you know, here and there, you just go, oh my gosh, M&Ms, I, I really like. Yeah. Merrily Rush, you are totally well-known right around the world for that massive hit. I can't believe it was in 1968. That's some time ago. Angel of the Morning is still out there being played on radio. Can you tell us just how you came to record that song? Well, the dance circuit up here, one of the, one of the acts that played this dance circuit in the Northwest was uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders. And we became friends and this wonderful roadie that we had ultimately went to work for them and they were doing a, a tour in the deep south and my roadie buddy suggested they put me on as an opening act and so that's how that happened and at the end of the tour they ended up in memphis where they were cutting their going to memphis album so i did a demo for the producer and he thought my voice was unique so i went back a month later and somebody walked in with a demo of Angel. And the demo was the writer, Chip Taylor. Chip Taylor, of course, is the younger brother of actor John Voight and uh, right. Angelina Jolie's uncle, right? Yes. And he also wrote Wild Thing. For the Trogs. Yeah. Yeah. and a guitar and it's just awful but I'm reading the lyrics and I'm going oh my god nobody's sung about this like this before because it was beautifully written about that subject and it was just a basic three chord progression Louie Louie well it was it was wild thing that progression so the the melody the chord changes were accessible the lyric was outstanding and so we cut it and the producer said, well, don't get discouraged. This is just your first record and we'll just keep plugging along and fine. And when it came out, it had smattering around the country. But then the manager at the time hired independent promo men and independent promo men were the way to get your record played. I think May of that year, we got a big order out of St. Louis and Poffert Wedge. You talk about the lyrics being outstanding. When we were growing up and listening to that song, as a teenager myself, I had no idea what I was singing. You you sang that it was actually about female empowerment. Yeah. Tell me about those lyrics. Well, back then, and it wasn't a blatant lyric. There was nothing blatant about yeah. the topic. It was about doing married things before the wedding, like I say on stage, and leaving in the morning. The topic was great, and the way he wrote it was so beautiful. Very sensitive about the topic. There'll be no strings to bind your hands, not if my love can't bind your heart. There's no need to take a stand For oh, it was I who chose to start I see no reason to take me home I'm old enough to face the dawn Me. 
things like that wouldn't have been discussed back in 1968. Right, and there were radio stations that would not play it. Because it, uh, it would encourage women to do the wrong thing. Yes, right. doing married things before the wedding. Oh, heavens. <laughs> 1968, Woodstock was the following year. It was perfect for its time. It was a sensational record. It reached number one in seven countries. So Angel must have changed your life in a lot of different ways, did it? Well, when I went to L.A., I got to do a lot of TV and meet a lot of people, a lot of stars. I believe in contrasts to teach you what you want and what you don't want. And so I experienced a lot of things that made me positive that I wanted to remain living in the Northwest. L.A. was just a culture shock for me. So I guess what you're saying to me is that it really didn't change your life in in as many ways as it could have. No, it, it reaffirmed my way of life. During that period when your record is climbing the charts and it's very surreal because you're standing back and watching this but you don't really experience it. You don't feel a part of it. You're watching it happen. Merrily Rush, I think a lot of people obviously know you for Angel of the Morning. What they may not know though is that you've released several singles after that. psychedelic version of the Four Tops Reach Out, the cover of the, the Carol King song, Child of Mine, the Billy Joel song, She's Got Away. You had a big hit with the follow-up single to Angel too, didn't you? Yes, the, the record was called That Kind of Woman. And when the writer played it for us in Memphis, we just thought it was a, a natural follow-up because of the lyric, because of the topic. But then again, we did not have the promotion that we're working on Angel, we didn't have that. So uh, it didn't do as well, but it was top 30. It sounds like there was a bit of disappointment around your career. It wasn't handled as well as it could have been a lot of the way through. Oh, gosh. Is that true? When you're used to being in control on stage, in the recording industry, it's, it's not so much because we put a my style band together. And we showcased at the Troubadour. Everybody from the label was there. And after we finished, the producer came up and said, my God, we've been cutting you all wrong. And that basically was the story of my recording career. Merrily, I'll let you go. You've just been so generous with your time. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. Which song would you like our audience to hear? Healing Hands of Time, written by Mickey Thomas from The Starship. It's one of those three songs that I did that I just go, I wish I could have had these released years ago because this is what I wanted to do. He broke my stopwatch, chatted the crystal. When he left me, that's when time stood still. But the big old clock kept on tick-tock ticking just Giving me the strength and the will To let the pieces fall back in new place In this jigsaw valentine I gotta put myself in the healing hands of time The healing hands of time 
Kelly has just released a new self-titled CD. If you're interested in taking a listen, you can pick it up from the website billymac.com. Stay tuned. Next up, we chat with Jethro Tull's Martin Barr. This is A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Welcome back. Now to the segment that belongs to you. Why you? Well, because you've requested the guest that we're chatting with next, and this week's no exception. Brian from Auckland in New Zealand wrote to me asking if we could hear from guitarist Martin Barr. Martin, for anyone who doesn't know, was an integral part of English band Jethro Tull for many years. As the lead guitarist, he'd been joined at the hip to Ian Anderson since 1969. Although Ian and Martin had a massive falling out, Ian had been quoted as saying, without Martin Barr, Jethro Tull could not have existed. Well, since the band broke up in 2011, Martin has been travelling solo with his own band, the Martin Barr Band. He picks up the story for us. Martin Barr, thanks so much for chatting with me. It's wonderful to meet you. How are you? I'm very good. Yeah, very good. I'm busy. Let's just uh, track back through the course of your career, if you don't mind, for a few minutes, and then we'll come up to present day and talk about what you're doing at the moment. You had an amazing career with Jethro Tull. Can you tell me about how that started for you in the first place? I was a professional musician in the UK. I've been in one band for three years and we'd sort of gone through different styles, I mean, different um, different trends. So we started out as a sort of soul band. We then went into R&B, and then we were a support band for some of the soul artists that came over from the States, the Drifters, the Coasters, Benny King. When the night has come And the land is dark And the moon is the only Night we'll see. No, I won't be afraid. Oh, I won't be afraid. Just as long as you stand, stand by me. Finally, we became a blues band when that came into fashion in '68 in England. You know the. the they had a thing called the Blues Train, which was all, all the artists, Freddie King, B.B. King, Albert King, Buddy Guy, Sonny Brown, Terry McGee, a huge, all on the train, going around England. Every week they got off at a station and did a gig. Everybody started playing guitar again. I got to play my guitar. I was still playing flute. And then towards the end of 68, I heard about another flute player who was playing in the same style. Of course, it was Ian. He heard about me and we talked about it, you know, with sort of all these rumours going around. And finally we met, we played a gig at a club. Two months later, the guitar, their guitar player left and uh, there I was. You obviously had a real affinity with Ian, not only musically but personally as well. How influential were those flutes in that band? Well, very in one way. It made the band different but essentially when I first saw Jethro Tull, Mick Abrahams was the star of the band and, and everybody went to see Mick play. Ian was a sort of weird guy on the side of the stage prancing around and people just thought it was a bit wacky. Hey, he did look that way for a while. Yeah, yeah. But then he became the image of Jethro Tull. And in the early days, we, we both played flute. We had a flute battle on stage where we just improvised for about 20 minutes, 30 minutes, as you did in those days. We played in London and we got a review in in the music press and they said that I was a better flute player than Ian. So the next day the manager took me to one side and he said, Martin, I think we're going to be having less flute from you and more guitar. Is that right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely right. (laughs) So my flute playing days were severely restricted by cat playing and uh, yeah i mean it's an image it's it's a brand and you allowed him to take the shine well i i mean basically guitar was my thing i had enough to do with the guitar playing that was a job in itself was there a competitiveness between you no but we were just gave each other space so in the early days you know that the everything was centered and focused around the guitar so the early songs big guitar wrists big chords and the flute was more decoration
when Ian's singing, he can't play flute. So, you know, it was uh, sporadic as well. But no, Tull have had a great understanding through the years of giving each other space and time and a place on the stage to do what needs to be done. Well, you're certainly well decorated for your guitar playing. You were voted 25th best solo ever in the US and 20th in the UK for Aqualung. And your playing of the guitar on Crest of Nave actually earned you a Grammy Award in 89. Yeah. It's like having a pat on the back. And, and, and then I think because in Tull, we never had that. There was never that thing in the band where people acknowledged a good gig or somebody playing well. It was just expected of us. So any accolades always came from outside of the band. I mean, we just tried to play better every year, every gig every album. Martin, how did you handle the initial success? Because it came with such a boom, didn't it? Yeah, I was very intimidated. I was nervous. I was was scared of being on stage because before Tull, I was playing clubs. So I was suddenly catapulted onto the big stage playing with Hendrix, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, Frank Zappa, Beefheart, Chicago, Everybody I'd ever I'd ever heard of, and I had to handle it. I had to run fast to keep up with the machine in that first year. By the end of it, I'd learned so much. It was a, a, a steep learning curve. a time that you wanted to step off that treadmill? I was loving it because it it was my dream, everybody's dream, to play guitar, to play in the States, come to Australia, South America, all these places we eventually got to. It's just incredible. Everybody wanted to do it. And then success was the icing on the cake. Must have been difficult handling family and touring like that. Well, I think the answer is it is for the family. It's a notoriously selfish occupation. Probably a lot of the time I didn't think enough about it. And and you could say, well, I was riding the crest of a wave. Or you could just say I I was um, just very self-centred. And I believe that all musicians are self-centred. Ego has to be a part of the persona. Otherwise, you can't do it. You can't get up on a stage in front of 20,000 people without having some sort of confidence or ego, whatever you want to call it. In retrospect, my kids are amazing that, that they did without me being there. I missed a lot of their upbringing. If you had to go back and do it again, would you do it any differently given that? Well, I would. I doubt if I had a choice. You know, When you're on a roll, it's very hard to say no to anything because you just didn't know how long it was going to go on for. So you just wanted to grab it. From one year to the next, nobody knew what was going to happen with our careers. You were lucky that you had such a terrific wife. I met my wife on the road. Did you? Yeah. At a concert? No, no. She she was working in the airport in Jackson, Mississippi. She was just standing in for her friend on that one day that we flew into Jackson. We never played Jackson ever again. But that one day, there she was. So I took her to the movies. How did you approach her? Your eyes just met and you knew? Well, she's a beautiful lady and she caught my eye. She caught everybody's eye. 
I just pushed my way to the front and then she came to England. It's romantic. She didn't know who I was. She couldn't understand me. Oh, that's very funny. She didn't, she didn't understand a word I said because she's from Mississippi. She's never met an Englishman, let alone somebody from Birmingham before. So how long did it take you to get her to move to England and, and marry you? It was pretty quick. And, and she comes on the road with a Martin Bar band all the time because she's, uh, she's the boss. Ian, when the band broke up in 2012, and is it at all repairable? Uh, oh, so long story. Uh, um, I sort of don't think or talk about it because it, it wasn't of my making. Ian suddenly came up with this idea in his mind that he, he wasn't going to have Jethro Tull exist. He was fed up with it. He didn't like big concerts. He was fed up with people shouting out in the songs and the whole sort of rock label that was attached to it. He hated it. So it finished. And I didn't know if it was temporary or what, but, but I started straight away to record and think about my future. And, and I was really determined that I wasn't going to finish in any way at all. It was back to the very basics of putting a band together, writing music, doing a CD, finding a record company. The entity called Jethro Soul was getting a, a very tired machine. It was getting uh, monotonous. So it, it, it was good it ended. I can imagine you must have been pretty hurt by his proclamation. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I, I was very hurt. And that brings us to the Martin Bar Band. solo CD called Roads Less Traveled. Then the next project was a 50 years celebration of my 50 years uh, of being on the road, mostly with Tull. It's all Tull's music, but songs that I've chosen, and they're not all the obvious ones. And we recorded the tracks live in the studio, and they were, they felt really good. You certainly seem to be getting better and more creative with age. It's so good to see. I thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you, Sandy. It's been a pleasure. Continued success. Good health. Bye. Jethro tells Martin Barr there. And don't forget, if you'd like to request a guest, I'd love to hear from you. Just send me the name of the artist you want to hear from, someone who's made music in the 60s, 70s or 80s, and I'll do my very best to get them onto the show for you. 
If you like listening to the show, maybe you could recommend it to a friend or two. And check out all the back episodes through any of the major podcast platforms if you feel like it. Leave me a review or a rating. I'd be really grateful. Take care of yourself, won't you, until we meet again same time next week. I'm looking forward to having your company then. Bye now. Because it's a beautiful day You've been listening to A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day.